In popular views of history, kind of in a sense uh, philosophically regarding history, uh, let me turn my timer on here. I know you will appreciate that, right? That's a good, even though I don't pay attention to it, but it's nice to have it just in case. Uh, but in history, understanding history, philosophy of history, whatnot, there's three primary ways that uh, we understand history. One, you might call that the cyclical view, cyclical, like something that cycles, that turns over and over. That is uh, meaning that when you die, you just kind of reincarnate it and cycle through another life. Uh, Hinduism, Eastern thought, uh, buys into this. Uh, karma, you know, if you did really bad stuff in this life, you'll be reincarnated as a, as a dog or a cat or something to punish you. You know, you'll have bad karma, good karma. Uh, but that's a cyclical view. There's another view that's primary, and really this is kind of the more dominant view of our secular culture, and that is more of an atheistic naturalist view. That's an evolutionary view. So there's no cycle. It's just that you, you live in a pointless existence. And when you die, you die, and that's it. There's no meaning. There's no purpose of life. You just kind of move forward, live, do some stuff, die, and that's it. There's really no meaning or purpose in life. But that is different than the third view, which is the Christian view of history. The Christian view of history stands in sharp contrast to the despair of, uh, and the hopelessness of those first two ideas. Just to remind you, the Bible, the Word of God, reveals that history, you know, you break it down, it's his story, that history is the outworking of the purposes of God. God is in control. History is the outworking of the sovereign God who is in control and planning all things. Job said that, I know that you, Lord, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah the prophet said, the Lord said by the Isaiah the prophet, God declared, my purpose will be established and I will, the Lord says, accomplish all my good pleasure, and I act, and who can reverse it? So life is not just some meaningless cycle. It's not just a linear where we just kind of go on in existence and, and die, and that's it. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. What's the point of anything? God has established time. He's established history, and history is under his sovereign hand, and it moves forward nanosecond by nanosecond, whatever a nano is, I don't know. But it moves according to the exact specificity of God's purpose. There's not an atom, there's not an event, there's nothing that runs rogue out of his purpose and his will. That's what the Bible teaches concerning history. History continues to unfold in the eternal plan and purpose of God. And with that kind of as a backdrop, there's one event 
that Scripture is very specific about, and that's something that we read here in 1 Thessalonians 5, that it is an event that is part of the purpose of God, and that is what is referred to as the day of the Lord. That is part of God's outworking of His purpose and plan. Now, just by context, remind you, if you've uh, been with us on Sunday, and you can go back online and and, uh, listen to these, Paul was answering a very specific, what appears most people see as an issue that the church had, these believers at the church at Thessalonica. He's writing a letter to this church. Timothy had come back, given him a report. So Paul's writing in response to some things that Timothy, his protege, uh, told him about. And one of the concerns that we saw in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and we, we covered that, that had to do with this concern that they had about loved ones who died. Uh, Will the loved ones who died that are believers, did they miss out on the second coming? Did they miss out on this rapture, this catching up? Did they miss out on all these things? Did they miss out on what they, you know, the Bible teaches about the resurrection, uh, the uniting of our spirit and our body? Did they miss out on these glorious things uh, that are foretold or told in advance concerning the second coming. Paul says, no, no, they didn't miss out on that. In fact, uh, uh, the believers, uh, they will actually precede us who are alive. Okay, so we, we, we looked at that in chapter 4 with uh, two messages, and again, that's online. But as he is continuing in this thought, this vein, if you will, remember, chapter headings and verse headings. They were put in by publishers years later, and they, they weren't, it wasn't the way that Paul wrote. But as we go into chapter 5, he pivots from teaching about what is the blessed hope of the Christian, of the believer concerning the second coming, and he pivots now to discuss what is involved concerning the unbeliever, the ungodly, the those who have rejected Christ, what is their expectation? What is their destiny, if you will? And so we move from chapter 4, this catching up, verses 16 and 17. We won't read it, but we come into chapter 5. And look again at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, I'd mark that, mark in your Bibles, use it. Uh, mark that, because that's a phrase that, or some variation of that phrase that is used in Scripture, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He says, look, I don't have anything to add to what you already know. And that, you know, that, I pointed that out, that that tells me that this young church, and they were a young church, that one of the things that Uh, the Apostle Paul did, and Timothy I'm sure did, is that in their foundation of teaching and understanding the Christian life, the second coming, the resurrection, the day of the Lord, all these things were part of things that they were taught, okay? It wasn't just something for advanced studies when you've been a Christian for 10 years. It was part of what is involved in understanding the basics and the foundations. Because he says, look, there's really nothing I can add. You already know my teaching. You already know the Word of God. But as we look in verses 1 through 9, and afterwards we'll 
uh, prepare and we'll take communion at the end of the service. But I want us to notice this morning and unpack this understanding in verses 1 through 9, the day of the Lord. And I want us to look at five truths concerning the day of the Lord. The first one I would have you notice is the announcement of the day of the Lord. The announcement of the day of the Lord. What is this day of the Lord? You may want to make a note of this if you're taking notes. Amos chapter 5, 18 through 20 is the first Old Testament usage of this term, the day of the Lord. But 2 Peter, for time's sake, is helpful to us. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you want to kind of go left and go over to 2 Peter, look what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And he reiterates what we'll study here and by the Paul. Peter says, but the day of the Lord kind of expands on it. But he says, this is Peter, different author, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he expands uh, what Paul would write. And so in essence, this day of the Lord, sometimes in the Bible it's called that day. Sometimes it's called the day. Uh, not D-Day, but the day. The day, it might be D-Day for some. Uh, the day of Christ in Revelation 6, 17. It speaks about the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. You don't think of lambs having wrath, but that's uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. Here's, a, here's a, a simple definition for our purposes this morning about this very specific term, the day of the Lord, that's used here in 1 Thessalonians. The, the concept biblically refers to the day of the Lord, refers to God's intervening in history. That's why I mentioned those things about history. It's God's intervention in history for judgment on his enemies. It's God's intervention in history in the events of this earth on his enemies and or for the deliverance or blessing of his people. An example of this is the exodus uh, a period when the uh, Israelites were in Egypt. It was a combination of judgment, but at the same time that judgment involved deliverance. So the day of the Lord has a very specific usage. Kind of just look to your Bibles to the right a little bit to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And again, we, we kind of expand this a little bit. Paul would write later in the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the topic, that's the subject, concerning the coming of our Lord, the second coming, and our being gathered together to him. That's that catching up that we're all in agreement with. Where we disagree is the when, the timing. He says, so concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit, not a good spirit, or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. False prophets would write a bunch of stuff and attach Paul's or Peter's name to it, claiming to be from them. I don't want you to be disturbed by these false teachers to the effect, and this is what 
is kind of going around, that the day of the Lord has come. Part of the, the confusion that these false teachers apparently were doing was, and this goes back to what uh, Paul was writing about in chapter 4, is that somehow they've missed all this. Not only did your loved ones miss the resurrection and the coming of the Lord, but the day of the Lord has already come and gone. He says, look, I don't want you to be confused by those things, that it has come. The final day of the Lord uh, begins uh, with this period. Again, we have different ways that we look at the timing of it with the period that is often referred to as the tribulation and concludes with the second coming of Christ. In verse 1, as I said, Paul says in this announcement, he says, you know all this already. And the one thing that we want to reiterate, and we don't have time to do it, is that this is something that is reinforced consistently throughout the word of the Lord concerning this day, this final day of God's wrapping up, if you will, or concluding, might be a better word, of history, of his purposes, not as a blessing for believers, but as a judgment on ungodliness. Now, I know that, you know, folks will say, you know, well, that's the old fire and brimstone preaching. That's that old fundamentalism. That's all that old stuff that, well, yeah, it is old because the Word of God has taught that. It may not be popular, but that is, again, that's why when you go through a Bible book, you kind of just have to take it as it comes with what is said. You don't have the opportunity to, to pick and choose. And this, again, is part of what Paul is trying to encourage and, and mention. One other important scripture that uh, you need to look at is in 2 Peter. Just kind of go to the right a little bit. 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, and let's pick it up at verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, it's not on the screen. I want you to separate your pages in your Bible. They're sticking together. 2 Peter chapter 3, and let's start at verse 3 and read through verse 7. Peter, knowing this first, Peter writes, knowing this first, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers, skeptics, will come in the last days with scoffing, making fun, following their own sinful desires. Verse 4, they will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, euphemism for death, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately... Peter says, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. But by the same word that just as judgment came Upon that flood, Noah, by the same word he says, looking at the future, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so this day is clearly announced in Scripture, and we need to pay attention to it. Secondly, 
I would want you to notice in verse 2 and 3 is the appointment of the day of the Lord. Not just an announcement, but an appointment of the day of the Lord. Verse 2 and 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. I meant to read verse 1 where he says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers. In other words, there is going to be, as he said in verse uh, uh, 2 and 3, he said that there is going to be a suddenness in the coming of this day of the Lord. There is an appointment that is fixed by God, and there is an appointment, and when it happens, there's going to be a suddenness. You know, when we start talking about things relating to the last days, the end times, one of the big, as, I, as I've said many times, one of the things that is immediate with people in questions or their attention isn't so much what the plain Scripture says about an event, but the question is, they want to know, when? When is this going to happen? And Paul says, he talks about times and seasons, but there is an appointment, and the appointment is clearly something that is said that is future. Look at this, uh, the disciples. Remember the disciples in Mark. If you want to look over at Mark, it might be on the screen. I can't remember if we put it on there. Mark chapter 13. The reason I have you turn to these because these are, these are important verses for you to kind of know where their, their address is and where they're located. Mark chapter 13, look with me at verses 1 through 4. The disciples, they were concerned and had questions about these things. And as Jesus came out of the temple, Mark 13 verse 1, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. In other words, isn't this great? Aren't you impressed with this temple there in Jerusalem? And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? When? When will these things be? And secondly, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And if you read on, uh, Jesus gives and talks about various signs. Do you remember after Jesus was um, right there during the, the uh, resurrection uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, uh, it should be on the screen, uh, that Jesus, right before he ascended bodily up into heaven, uh, that when they came together, kind of in the last moments with his disciples, what was the burning issue? What did they want to know? They didn't really get their answer back here. They got some signs of things to look for. But right before Jesus ascended there in Acts chapter 1, they had this burning question. They said, so when they had come together, they, the disciples, asked him, quote, Lord, will you at this time, surely after a resurrection, that's, I mean, what else do you need? Will at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, and Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or season, seasons that the Father has 
fixed. That's not a waffling date. It's fixed. Why? How? By his own authority. Or you could even say his sovereignty. They wanted to know the times or seasons. Your Bible might say times and epochs. The word, the two words there are chronos and kairos, all right? Chronos, chronology, I have a watch on. That is a chronological instrument that is giving me a measurement, minute by minute, hour by hour. It's linear. It's time. But epics, as some versions might use, or seasons, that's not necessarily a fixed at, we're going to meet at 2 o'clock, but that is more of a general sense of the period. Some of you parents ask, you know, when you, your children, you, you say they can do something. And they keep asking you and say, it's not time yet. They want to know, chronos, okay, at 5 o'clock can I do it? But in your mind, you're saying, it's not time, meaning it's not the season. In your mind, you're thinking, you got a few years before we're going down that road. You see the difference there. So he's just saying, it's not for you to know the the kairos or the chronos, the times are epics, but he said those things are things that God has fixed. And he gives this analogy, and you may want to just make note of Matthew 24, 42 through 44. We won't read it here. But he reiterates that this coming will be sudden. It'll be like a thief, this, this appointment. It's going to come sudden. And he gives this analogy of a woman in labor pains that preceding part of the consequence of being pregnant, ladies, as you know, and I speak not by personal knowledge, other than just an observer, um, that labor pains accompany, that's part, when, when a woman is pregnant, and let me say a woman is pregnant, I know we need to make sure that's clarified in our confused culture, but, but uh, that, that labor pains are the consequence of giving birth. And that there is a time in which there are sporadic, non-expected, but then there's a moment, ladies, when the pains grow in intensity. And you know, this is it. This is it. It doesn't matter what I want or think. This baby it's happening. It's happening. So he gives that analogy just to, again, to say, yes, there's going to be pain and stress, but there's an intensity as the buildup comes. And he also says in verse 3, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, he says that there will be people that say peace and safety. That reminds me when we went through the book of Jeremiah. We won't look at it, but in Jeremiah chapter 6, uh, verse 14 Uh, The false prophets, Jeremiah was a good prophet, a true prophet, and he was a prophet to uh, the nation of Israel, and he was announcing God's judgment. He was announcing God's judgment upon them as a nation that God was going to judge them, that God was going to actually use a foreign power to come and be an instrument of judgment. And so as he, and by the way, he did not have a popularity, he didn't win any popularity contests. Because people don't want to hear that. Some of you don't want to hear this. You'd rather hear me talk about every day's a Friday. You know, that, that's kind of the culture that we're in. You don't want to talk about judgment. That's old hat, that's old school. But it's interesting that just as Paul 
points this out. This was going on in Jeremiah's day that there were false prophets saying, don't listen to that nut. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, before you know it, he'll be on the street corner down here at 98 with a sandwich board with, you know, the end is near. Don't believe that kook. Everything is fine. It's peace and safety. They're identified in Jeremiah and many other places, but also here as false prophets who are countering the word of the Lord. Sounds like America as we slide further into the abyss of immorality where we call evil good and good evil. And we wonder why the pulpits in America avoid the subject of talking about sin. I'll tell you why they avoid the subject of sin. Because if you talk about sin, you're going to have to talk about judgment. And if you talk about judgment, you're going to have to talk about the authority and the sovereignty of our Creator God. And you're going to have to talk about God's Word. So why not just avoid the subject altogether? It's too complicated. We want to be happy and motivated to pursue our dream. It's what a lot of churches fill their pulpits with. We want to have our best life now. But see, let me make sure you understand this, because this is a danger. It's not just preaching moral clarity, folks. It's living a life with moral clarity and conviction. Talk is cheap. And this culture is well acquainted with the hypocrisy and the phoniness and the shallowness of Christians who talk a big game but live double lives and are hypocrites. So when people say the church is full of hypocrites, I say, you're right, but we always got room for one more. No, in all seriousness, guys, it isn't just talking a game. It's not just talking right and wrong and God's Word. It's living it. Do we live it? You know, well, oh, I better not go there. All right. But let's go back to the context. Paul, no. Paul, Paul's addressing, let's keep it in context there. By the way, 1 Peter 4.17 says that judgment begins at the household of God. So there is a place of judging ourselves and letting the Word of God judge us because God will hold us accountable for our inconsistencies and hypocrisies. But Paul, in this concept and context, he's talking about specifically judgment, the wrath of God upon the wicked, those who have rejected God. He's, talk, he's not talking about believers. He, he addressed what happens in the future with believers in chapter 4. So how does this day of the Lord affect us as believers? And that leads us into the third observation, not the announcement or the appointment, the suddenness, but thirdly, the anticipation of the day of the Lord. He says this in verses 4 and 5. He says, But you, you, believers, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul says, 
the anticipation for the believer, you're not, you don't have to live in dread or fear because this is something that even though you should expect it because the Word of God says it, you don't have to dread it because you're children of light. You understand what is going to happen to the believer. You understand how this fits into the second coming events of Christ. And so you, believers, you are not of the darkness. Now, I just throw this out as an observation um, that made me wonder as I read this, and I just made the note, that if, and I'm not saying it's yes or no, but if you, I just find this maybe a little, uh, maybe I need to study it more, But if you want to hold to a strict view of the rapture before the tribulation, why does Paul spend time uh, kind of warning them and encouraging them that they won't be overtaken by the suddenness of this day when they're not even going to be here or we're not even going to be here? I mean, if a Category 5 hurricane was coming and I had already moved to... Maine, I'm not interested in any warnings because I'm not even going to be there. I'm not going to be around. Why, why warn me when I'm up in Maine? Don't go out and start a new church over there. I'm just saying, <coughs> why does he spend time warning them? And as we'll see, emphasizing how they should live in anticipation of this day of the Lord if the believer will not be here for part, middle, all, or some of this intensity of the day of the Lord. If we're just gone, who cares? Right? But he says, no, you need to, you got to understand how to anticipate this, navigate it. All right, that's free, no charge. But he says, we are not of the night. Why are we not of the night? Because when a believer comes to faith in Christ, Look at Colossians, it'll be on the screen. Colossians 1, 12 and 13. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Look at verse 13. He has, past tense, the believer, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us where into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For at one time... You are in darkness, but now, Christian, you are light in the Lord. Walk, live as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what it means to walk in the light. We are not in the darkness. We have the light of Christ as believers. We have the light of the Holy Spirit. We have the light of the Word, right? So we have the ability to discern good and evil. We have the ability to make that discernment. So the announcement, an appointment, anticipation, but fourth is the attitude, he says, concerning the day of the Lord, verses 6 through 8. So then, let us not sleep. Some of you need to hear that just now. So then, all right, that's a joke. So then, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. I think I might get that on the banner up here. What do you think? That would be, no, some of you. Let us not sleep, 
let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, do you see what he's doing? He's contrasting using this picture, day, night, light, darkness. What is our attitude? The attitude in knowing and anticipating this day of the Lord, our attitude, it should motivate us to live in line and conformity, listen, of who we are. Who are we? We are in Christ. We are light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 1 John 1, 7. We are told to walk in the light as he is in the light. We're not in darkness. So even though contrasting those who are in darkness, who are indifferent, who are indifferent to this day of the Lord, he says, you're not of that. Your attitude, and notice he doesn't say your attitude should just be, hey, just, hey, don't worry about anything because you're out of here. You're gone. He doesn't say that. He reiterates, really, by this language what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Talking to believers. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, with this picture, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why are we to live lives that are consistent with the light of Jesus Christ? Why are we to do that? Because Jesus says that as you live your life, they will give glory or glory will come to the Father who is in heaven. So this attitude of the day of the Lord. Now this is to me what's interesting here. I want to just point out. This is anything, and again, I'm not dogging on the rapture here. As I said, one week I'll give you this, one week I'll say this, because again, it's kind of a moving target when you talk about it, right? Right? Hello? Right? Yes? Yes? What's he talking about? No, sorry. This is anything but a passive mindset to just la-di-da, sit back, and wait for the rapture. That is not the attitude that, he is, he, that he's talking about here. He's saying, look, uh, in fact, uh, he says, don't be like unbelievers that are sleepwalking through life. Be awake, be alert, pay attention. And verse 8 has very similar <coughs> language that we see over in Ephesians 6. Listen to this, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, he's writing again, Christians, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Sober. Now notice this language, tell me what it sounds familiar having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What does that sound like? That sounds like Ephesians 6, doesn't it? It sounds like the armor that is pictured there 
uh, of the believer. Now, you know what that tells me? That this day of the Lord Christian, your attitude, it's not passive. We're to be awake. We're to be alert. The attitude of anticipating this day of the Lord, a cataclysmic, terrible day of God's judgment that the Word of God clear, uh, clearly it, uh, speaks of, is that there is, in this period of time, it is going to be a time of spiritual battle. It's going to be a time of warfare. It is anything but a passive, just wait and chill and wait to get out of here. Thank you, Austin. I appreciate that. Your money's in the mail. He says you need to be dressed and outfitted for battle. What does that mean? That means you should be laboring in, in light stuff. I don't mean light in the sense of lifting. I'm talking about light stuff. That means you should be filling your mind more of God's truth than the nonsense that's going on in our culture. You should fill your mind and heart with truth so that when you see evil being called good and good being called evil, you have the light of discernment and you're able to separate fact from fiction because you're children of the light. He says, look, there's really no excuse because you're children of the light. You have the resources of being born again. You have the resources of the Holy Spirit. You have the resources of the Word of God. So you have no reason not to know what truth is and what truth is not. And so this announcement, this appointment, this anticipation not to fear, our attitude, put on the armor of God, basically he's saying. But there's a fifth. And the fifth is the answer to the day of the Lord or on the day of the Lord. The answer on the day of the Lord. In just a moment, we're going to focus on communion. And it's appropriate, I think, that this last verse is here. Because the day of the Lord, listen, you may not, you may not believe this and that you're right not to believe it, but you can't deny that these things are not taught in Scripture. The day of the Lord, to remind us, should be sobering. It is a terrifying judgment of God's wrath for the overwhelming sinfulness of the world. The wrath of God, the judgment that is going to be upon those who have rejected Him, live in rebellion, unbelievers, ungodly, Christ-rejectors, they will face that who remain on this day, the day of the Lord. It's a time of intense judgment and wrath of God. Now, here's what's important. If you haven't heard anything, hear this. This is what's significant. This is what is important. Is that the believer, it says in verse 9, look at verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the believer will not face the wrath of God. You know why? Because the wrath of God for our sin has already been laid and poured up on Christ Jesus. We don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear judgment. 
Why? Because Jesus received our judgment. He bore the wrath of God. There's a word in Scripture. Some of our translators and some of the versions, NIV and some others, they just choose to use a different word, and I understand. It's a, but it's that word propitiation. And it has a very rooted, specific meaning in the Old Testament when the sacrifice was laid upon the altar, that the sacrifice was intended to satisfy, to appease the wrath of God, temporarily Old Testament, only covered, wasn't a taking away as Christ, but the lamb, the sacrifice, temporarily satisfied the wrath of God. What was temporary under the Old Covenant is now permanent in the New. Jesus Christ has absorbed by Himself. You don't add anything to it. The only thing you add to the cross is your sin. That's it. It's Christ and Christ alone. So as we celebrate communion, we celebrate that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in His body. Now, I'll let smarter people than me debate about the eschatology of verse 9, but I know this, that God has not destined us to wrath. Why? Because He's destined us. He's predetermined. He's predestinated us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says. And Jesus understood his mission. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He must do that. In fact, he said later, when he was anguishing over this mission, this purpose, he prayed and said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But he says, But for this purpose I have come. He understood his mission. The death of Christ wasn't some prophet Jesus that got punished for saying things that Romans and Jewish leaders didn't like. It wasn't, he wasn't a martyr in that sense. He was the Son of God given to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, on behalf of our sin. That's what 1 John 2, 2, Romans, you just go on. Remember the prophecy in Isaiah? And just listen. Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 6, speaking prophetically ahead of the mission of Christ. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Up on him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, I don't think it's talking about physical healing, and with his wounds we are healed. Healed from what? The death sentence of sin. All we like are sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord, look at the language, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah would say in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
he shall see his offspring. Everyone that Christ died will be in heaven. Not going to be any empty seats. Not going to be any empty seats. Everyone that Christ's blood atoned for will be seated one day in that great supper of the Lamb. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, picturing that it was a finished work. He sat down. Single sacrifice. All Remember what the writer of Hebrews, all the blood of the bulls and goats, all that sacrifice in the temple, all that that went on. Imagine billions of gallons of sacrifice blood that was shed did nothing of what Jesus did one time. Finally, 